through 41. Uh, Hear now the word of God. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? And some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. And he kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how are your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight, and he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him, since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked him, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, he is of age, ask him. And so for the second time, they called the man who had been born blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he say? What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have already told you, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciples, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began... Has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind? If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they cast him out. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, brothers and sisters in Christ, there's a couple of things that's really hard about kind of the after effects, the aftershocks of becoming a Christian. One 
is that you've got a gigantic change in your heart um, that impacts literally everything that it is that, uh, that you do, uh, everything in, in, in your life. Your motives are changed. Uh, you begin to see the world in totally different terms, a totally different way. Uh, you begin to love what the Lord loves and hate the things that the Lord hates. Uh, you have a different outlook on life that you're kind of entering into. You do things for the glory of Christ, uh, for the benefit of the kingdom of God, whereas your entire life up to that very point uh, was lived essentially to the benefit of yourself. Uh, you step into this, um, uh, this, this newfound glory, this newfound life. So one of the joys, one of, I could say it this way, is something of a joyful burden that the Christian has simply to learn what it is, what the Christian life is in the first place, and how the Christian life is to be lived in the first place now that they have, now that you have a changed heart. The second thing that's rather difficult about the Christian life is living it in front of other people. Um, Put it this way, uh, what effect is this going to have on other people? Uh, what effect is this going to have when I try to live out this life uh, to my society, to this, the, the people on the outside? What, what, are people, what will people say? Uh, how are they going to react? Are they going to like me more? Or perhaps are they not going to like me as much uh, now that I have this new life in Christ? So uh, even beyond that, what do I say and what do I do when I'm challenged uh, to this new life in Christ that I have? Or even worse, what am I going to do and what am I going to say when people tell me that it's really cool that I found religion and stuff, but it's not really for them at this moment in their life? I mean, you can kind of see that embodying uh, the Christian life, embodying the Christian experience uh, is uh, a difficult thing. Taking upon the, uh, yourself the agenda of the kingdom of God is one of the difficulties for sure, but then embodying the Christian life and living it before others and all the complexities that that entails has its own world of difficulties and that's mainly because you don't know how they're going to react. And that's essentially what we see with this man right here in this, uh, this chapter uh, with the man formerly blind. Last sermon, we focused a lot more upon the miracle, uh, or as uh, John uses this, uh, this word, the sign itself. Uh, and we said that it's a display in this man that in a fuller sense is a microcosm of what the Lord Jesus Christ does in the life of every single person who follows him. And although it wasn't a highlighted portion of the sermon, a lot of it is uh, an extrapolation of verse, uh, verse 8. I'm sorry, verse, uh, verse 4, or verse 5 rather. It's an extrapolation of verse 5, which is the second time we're, we're hearing this. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Uh, this is the second time, as I said, he, he says this. Uh, that is to say, just as at the beginning of the Bible in creation, God who is the eternal I am, uh, who is from everlasting and uh, into everlasting. Uh, God, who at first separated the light from the darkness in the first day of creation, uh, as he does this, so too the light of the world has now taken someone in darkness and has made it so that the light can now fill his very eyes to see. And from here in, into the remainder of the chapter, we're told how people reacted to this. And if you're the first audience to read or hear the, this story in the Gospel of John, you'd think that everybody in this story would then rally around this guy and be amazed at this and be amazed at the work of the Lord Jesus. 
But instead, you find something else entirely. In fact, if you were the first audience, uh, you would very much resonate with what you're reading because it would sort of be somewhat of an allegory of your experience, your life experience, living in a society where Christians aren't exactly appreciated, let's put it that way, very lightly. In fact, what happens uh, with this guy here in verse 34, uh, when it says they cast him out and and getting thrown out, is what most likely happened to the original audience. And so it's indicative of the potential experience of anyone who names the name of Christ and calls him a prophet as this man has done. And so for tonight, our theme is written in your bulletin that after the man was healed of his blindness, he goes through similar experiences that other believers do, and yet he has the same Savior to come to his aid, even as we do. And we'll see these three experiences. Firstly, confusion and anger. Secondly, disregard and abuse. And thirdly, uh, compassion and defense. And starting in our first um, of of the three points, starting in the first of of his experiences, on confusion and anger, we come to the beginning portion of this passage where people knew him to be that guy who was the blind beggar for a very long time. Eventually, evidently rather, uh, they recognized this uh, this man. Uh, He was very well known to others. Verse 8, they start uh, arguing the legitimacy of all this. Some were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? The way that it's worded in the original language is such that the answer to this question is yes, it is, which is what you see in the following verse. Uh, Some uh, said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. And then he, the formerly blind man, said, I am the man. In other words, there's confusion about the man himself. Something's happened to him that doesn't match what we know about this guy. Something's happened to this man that doesn't match what the the characteristic qualities that this man has this entire time that he's uh, lived and this entire time that I've known him to be the blind beggar. This is not the guy who I characteristically know and have known for a long time, even though he's right there. It's even easier to believe that, that uh, uh, this guy's disappeared, he's got a stunt double, uh, than it is to believe that he's the same guy that they've known for a long time, that he's healed. So they're confused about him. They're also confused about the action itself. Take a look at verse 10. Uh, they ask, then how were your eyes opened? Uh, he answered, the man called Jesus, made mud and anointed my eyes and said, go to Siloam and wash. And so I went and washed and received my sight. And after hearing how kind of straightforward and, and plain uh, this, uh, this was, now they're confused about Jesus as well. Uh, verse 12, uh, where is he? And he said, well, I, I don't know. Uh, you're getting the idea that this man here is uh, rather, rather naive. Uh, he doesn't have that many answers to give. He doesn't have uh, all his ducks in a row to say. Uh, but he doesn't have to give many answers. He doesn't really... Uh, need to have his ducks in a row, does he? Because at the end of the day, he can see, right? I mean, that's uh, proof positive. At the end of the day, he can see, and it's all on account of Jesus. That's all that really matters to him. That really, you know, in terms of a preaching point, that's really all that should matter for us, too. I mean, in his light, we see light. So it's okay if you don't have all all your ducks in a row. The fact is that you've got to change life. And, and, And you're counted as one who is in Christ, 
You know, just like this, uh, this guy, I mean, we are rather naive ourselves, and that's okay. You don't have to have all your ducks in, in a row in all aspects of, of, of your systematic theology. Uh, similarly, then, um, going forward, when he's brought to the Pharisees, uh, verse 14, only uh, for them there's a little bit of a wrinkle in the story, okay? Uh, verse 14 says, Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. This is a big wrinkle in the story for uh, the Pharisees, as, as you can imagine, uh, on two counts, um, that he made mud. Uh, in Pharisaical uh, interpretation of how to keep the Sabbath, it's still something that uh, persists to this day. How do you make mud? You need to knead mud. You need to knead the dirt just as you would knead dough. There's a law against kneading in the, um, in the Tosefta and the Talmud as well. You can't knead on the Sabbath in order to make mud. As a matter of fact, um, it goes beyond that. And so the second point, not only can you not knead mud to make mud, uh, this Jesus now to the Pharisees has also worked to cause this man to be healed in the first place. So to them, this is a violation of the Sabbath. Oh no! And they're really, that's really all that they're interested in. The results of this culminates to just their sheer anger over the situation. You could see verse 16. Instead of saying, oh wow, this guy can see, praise God. This, this guy, from, uh, from the moment he was born, he couldn't see, and now he can see. We'll deal with the Sabbath stuff a little bit later and whatnot, but wow, he can see. Instead of saying this, Verse 16 says, well, this man, referring to Jesus, you could see the, uh, the animosity, the vitriol, in that they don't even name Jesus. Uh, this man is not from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. Um, but others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? You can kind of see that they're just as much confused uh, like the former people, like the others, but to them, there's another layer of, uh, of things. To them, there's a layer of anger that causes them not even to care that the guy is healed. To them, the real important thing is over the matter of their interpretation of the Sabbath law, which, by the way, I don't know if I need to mention this, their interpretation of the Sabbath is not the Bible's interpretation of the Sabbath. There's a whole book. I mentioned the Talmud. There's a whole book in the Talmud listing all of the commandments, all of the stuff that you can't do and can do on the Sabbath goes well beyond, well, far beyond what you see in the fourth commandment. Far beyond it. Uh, there's a lot more to be said there, but they're far more interested in the minute details of what constitutes the violation of the Sabbath than they are in the fact that this guy is healed. And it angers them further that Jesus had anything to do with this at all. So now they project their anger toward this man, especially, of course, when he says in verse 17 of Jesus, he is a prophet. That is, this sign that he has done clearly shows that Jesus is from God, and everything that he has said up to this, this point is validated in this sign, and y'all who think this, uh, this way about the minute details about the Sabbath Y'all need to take him into account because you guys are focused on incredibly the wrong things. Whatever you think about the Sabbath itself, the fact that Jesus 
has done this demonstrates that he is a prophet, and we know and have come to find that Jesus, exactly like this man has come to find, that he is a prophet and that he is the prophet. Uh, this is one of his offices as a prophet. He is, to end, he is the prophet to end all prophets. I mean, now that Jesus is here, what more needs to be said? Now that Jesus is here, what more needs to be done? What more needs to be said and done than the things that Jesus has said and done? The long and short of everything here is that people can be confused about what happened to you in your being brought into the kingdom of God. Uh, people can get angry about what happened to you and you being brought into the kingdom of God. And when you're in the gospel of grace, sometimes it's the fact that the people who could get the angriest with you are the ones who want you to live according to a works-based system. Uh, I found this to be true in my own life, and perhaps you have as well, that the idea that you can't save yourself when you really think about it is repulsive to a society like ours uh, that tells you no matter what side of the political aisle that you're on, that you need to better yourself, you need to work for yourself, and you need to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. For some, the call, the upward call of God in Christ is just plain confusing. They don't know what to do with it. They have no concept of being redeemed by the grace of God alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. They have no idea what to do with it. For others, it angers them. That is, they don't want to know what to do with it. They want nothing of it. They would rather save themselves, thank you very much, in whatever way that that's projected to them. And then this leads us to our next point. This man also, this not, not only did this man have the reaction experience of confusion and anger, he's also had the reaction, the response, and the experience of disregard and abuse. And we see in verse 18 that the Jews really buy into that first point um, pretty much wholesale. They really buy into their confusion and anger. In that verse 18, they did not believe that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of the man. Now, of course, the man who was healed is out of the picture just for a moment. He steps aside in the, in the narrative. The judicial process of a local synagogue like this would have multiple levels of investigation, and so they'll take the guy's parents, they'll isolate the, the, guy, the guy's parents here as the chief witnesses to make sure that the stories line up. But you can see that this man's parents, uh, at the end of the day, are no real help to him at all either. Uh, this is what uh, verse 22 says, that they feared the Jews because the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. And so the parents are bullied uh, to treat him with a similar sense of disregard as the religious elitists do. They somewhat, that is the parents, uh, somewhat are clones now of the religious elite. There are clones of them. They think like them now. They're bullied to think like them. They're bullied to act like them. Instead of manning up, instead of defending their son, instead of testifying to the truth, instead of uh, doing all this, instead of doing what is their duty as a parent, what do they do? They leave him exposed to their abuse so that in their mind, whatever is going to happen to him, that ain't going to happen to me. Right? You know, so they're, they're disregarding uh, their own son. And so 
um, his parents say to the religious elite, verse 21, 20, 23, he is of age, one should go ahead and go ahead and ask him. Uh, here we have a kind of a close up, close and personal example of the man's own parents neglecting him in his time of need. You may very well identify with this at some level. This might have a resonance with your life. I know that, and we know that the original readers certainly resonated with this. It may be that you've come to Christ, you've come to the fountain of living water, you've come to the light of the world, only to be abandoned by your family as well. If this is you, uh, if you can resonate with this man right here, the Lord Jesus promises you that his church, uh, not only throughout the world, but throughout time, is your family. This is one of the reasons why I start, again, most sermons with brothers and sisters in Christ. If you've ever been neglected, even by your closest friends, the ones who are supposed to have your back, on account of the things of Christ, you have in the church throughout the world and throughout all of time the family of God. Jesus promises to you, Luke chapter 18, verse 29, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. The church of Christ, uh, we can say this from this very story, is to be the shelter of those who have been neglected. It is to be the haven of those who have been cast out and thrown out by those who should have had their back and disregarded them. And not only was he disregarded by his own family, but he was also abused by the religious elite going forward. Verse 24, for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner, which is a trap, right? This is why they start with, uh, with that statement, give glory to God. It doesn't actually mean anything. They just need to say it to get, it, you know, to get that box checked, right? It's a trap. They're trying to lay a trap for this, uh, this, this man to say something that he can't get out of, exactly like what he said in verse 17, that Jesus is a prophet. But instead, he responds in a marvelously simple statement, right? Uh, verse 25, whether he is a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, though I was blind, now I see. This phrase ought to be etched on the heart of every single follower of the Lord Jesus. This phrase ought to be etched on all of our hearts. It's simple. Uh, it's direct. Uh, it's very short. It gives glory to Jesus. And more than anything, it's beyond dispute, and I say this for a reason, uh, that just as no one can dispute that this has happened to him, uh, just, that, uh, just as no one can dispute that claim, uh, it is a thing beyond dispute that we know that this is the man who is, uh, has been there. No one can dispute the claims that have been made upon you to give you the regenerated heart that you have. No one can dispute those claims Anymore, No one can dis dispute the claims of a changed life. No one can dispute that you have a desire to love the things that God loves and to hate the things that God hates. No one can dis dispute the changed life. There is no argument out there that can 
answer or shut you down knowing that you have a longing in your heart for the things of God. It's the thing beyond dispute that your heart's on fire now for Christ. That's something that is beyond dispute. And this is what's at play in this man's reply. And so for the next number of verses, they enter into a, a dialogue that's somewhat filled with a comedic expression, comedic sarcasm on the, uh, on, on the side of the man who was born blind. And then on the other side, we have uh, just wicked presumption. On the one hand, the man um, shows that, well, very clearly, that they are the ones who, in fact, don't have all the answers. And then on the other hand, they are the ones that, as the religious elite, are the ones who continue to mistreat them, mistreat this man. Verse 28, they reviled him. This is the only time in the Gospel of John where this word is used. But he then dares to do what is, you know, in their estimation, the unthinkable. He intends to teach them. You don't do that with these types of people. Verse 31, he engages with them in an unrefined sort of instruction uh, that, yes, admittedly, it could be sharpened, it could be uh, qualified a little bit bit more, but he's got the general gist of the flow uh, pretty uh, pretty well said, especially if you know the, the book of Proverbs. He says, we know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind, which is true. This is the uh, first and only time in the Bible where uh, this miracle has been done on a man who has been born blind. He says, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. You see the man's boldness coming out. Uh, you see the man's boldness in contrast to the timidity of his parents. Um, all the while you see the development of the vitriol and the hatred coming from the religious elite. And that's why, by the way, they're here twice in this passage. That's why you have uh, rando neighbors and friends and then religious elite. And then you have parents and then you have religious elite. The religious elite are in here twice to show you this, to be a point of comparison with the others so that it can be shown that the sin of the religious elite always outpaces the activity of everybody else in this chapter. And this is what they do in verse 34, not even really answering his instruction, uh, no matter how unrefined it was. They say, you were born in utter sin. Right? Not, even, not even affirming this, what this guy has to say. You were born in utter sin. And would you teach us? I mean, you can kind of see the pride just dripping right off of that. You could see the, uh, the hatred just dripping off of those words, can't you? And so they cast him out. And this is, by the way, one of the worst things that could happen to a person, to a Jew in that day and age, to be banished or disfellowshipped from the synagogue because that means that you have reached immediately, this guy unfortunately reached the third of the three degrees of censure, of punishment, discipline. It means that he couldn't have any benefit of the Jewish system as a whole whether national, uh, religious, domestic. He was cast out, abused, especially by the ones who um, ought to be the most forgiving, most loving. But in his banishment, in his banishment, we see the last experience that he had that really he should have had this entire time. This entire chapter should have been filled with what you see going forward. Uh, that as the people were confused, as the people were angry, as uh, he was being disregarded, as he was being abused, the Lord Jesus comes to this man 
in his experiences, in his abuse and abandonment, and he shields him. He covers him with compassion and defense. And this is the last of his experiences, last of our our point this, uh, this evening. And we can see this here in verse 35, his compassion, his defense. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they cast him out and having found him, stop there. Think of what's going on here. This right here shows the compassion of the Savior. This right here shows what this man deserved the entire time. This right here shows the compassion of the Lord Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, uh, the light of the world, God the God-man, who when he heard the news, he makes a point to commit himself to going looking for the man. Is that not the compassion that this man deserves this entire time? Beyond that, what does he do? The Lord Jesus, who is God from everlasting to everlasting, he reveals himself to this man. He says, do you believe in the Son of Man, which is a title of deity? Uh, many people believe that it's a title of humanity. If you read it in Daniel chapter 7, it is a title of deity. Equivalent to the name of God, I am. He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? This is the only legitimate question that he asks in this chapter because he knows that he's in the presence of someone who can legitimately answer him with compassion. And his ultimate response, verse 38 He worshipped Jesus, giving the Son of Man the worship that he is due. Jesus is God from everlasting to everlasting. He can heal this man who was born blind, and so he is worthy of worship. We see the compassion of Christ was there tangibly right in front of the man in the midst of his abuse, in the midst of his pain, in the midst of his suffering, in the midst of his neglect. And now we can also say that the compassion of Christ was actually found throughout the entire chapter in a certain sense, can't we? Uh, the man has been talking about it for, for the entire time. Uh, he's uh, talking about the works of Jesus to various people uh, this entire time. Verse 11, the man called Jesus sent me to go wash, and so I went and I washed and received my sight. Verse 15, he put mud on my eyes, I washed and I see. And then that famous verse 25, listen guys, one thing I know, Though I was blind, now I see. This shows the compassion of the Savior that perhaps we just uh, uh, glossed over the the entire time. The man of compassion does the work of compassion. We've been seeing this the entire time. And now he comes to the man to reveal himself to him so that the man would worship him who is from everlasting to everlasting and yet has shielded him with this compassion. And beyond this, Jesus does for him what his parents failed to do in defending him Uh, by assuring him of his own faithfulness in the last two things he says in verses 39. uh, He tells the man, imagine what this does to to this man's emotions right here. He says, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, like what happened to the man. And those who see may become blind, like the religious elite. It's the great reversal that's going on here. Uh, the naive, rather simplistic blind man can see uh, more clearly than ever before in his life while the scholarly elitists who are in power rely upon themselves are shown to actually be the blind ones. 
Some of the Pharisees, of course, attempt to engage him on this question at the end of the chapter. Um, Are we also blind? And Jesus answers them something with the basic result that if you rely upon yourself, your abilities, your accolades, your achievements, and if you don't understand yourself as in need of the Son of Man, which is entirely, by the way, against a works-based system, then you're the one who is uh, blind. If you don't see yourself is in need of the Son of Man, you're blind. But if you, are, if you are one who abandons yourself, you recognize your need for the things of Christ, then he's the one who comes to you. If you abandon yourself, then he will come to you and you will worship him and you will see. He says essentially the same thing to the man that he's defending him against the abuse of the religious elite, then which starts everything that he says in the next chapter where he calls them out even more. And what a defense this is. What a defense this is uh, to be covered uh, by the compassion of the Son of Man. And this, brothers and sisters in Christ, is what is like to live the Christian life in front of the world, no matter who you're in front of and no matter what happens. Christ has done a work in you that's at some level, relatively simple to explain, but incredibly difficult to live out and even to live out in front of others. And yet we hold to Christ with a very similar confession as this man does here, that though I was blind, uh, now I see. Uh, We see tonight that after this man was healed of his blindness, he goes through very similar experiences as other believers do, and yet the same Savior that's come to him is the same Savior that comes to us as well. I have a couple of applications for us as we close tonight. Firstly, uh, brothers and sisters, again, we've been uh, looking at this uh, perhaps uh, for the entirety of the sermon, uh, perhaps uh, the last sermon. What happened to this guy here is similar to what happened to you. What happened to this man here is similar to what happened to you. Uh, It's here to show you a picture of the gospel. The God-man uh, comes to the one who's been neglected. He comes to the blind man. Uh, he's been neglected, uh, abused. Uh, people are angry at him. He's been cast out. And even though all the host of heaven worships the God-man, Nehemiah chapter 9, he stoops down to you. And by grace, he covers you. He's revealed himself to you, and you have apprehended him by faith alone. And now you're under his defense. Uh, You're under the defense of the God-man. It takes someone who's more powerful than God to undo what he's done in your heart. And I'll make it easy for you. There is no one who is more powerful than God. Uh, This, in some way, shape, or form, uh, is a picture, a historical picture of what has happened to you as well. Secondly, be a help to other Christians in need. Be a help to other Christians in need. The story is here to show us something of how we're to be treating one another. Uh, The only person who actually helped and cared for this man in this entire passage is Jesus. And this then sets up a paradigm for his church. That if you're in a position to help a brother or sister in Christ and you neglect to do so, then you're no better than the Pharisees here. Uh, Proverbs 3, verse 27, I believe, says, uh, Don't neglect to do good to uh, the one to whom it is due, and it is your power within your power to do so. This tells us that we're not like the world. We don't march to the beat of their drum. We don't hold to an individualist model of the Christian life. There really is no such thing. This is why, as a matter of fact, we have the Bible, so that we know that 
we are the people of God in Christ. We know that God has a people. Here we see uh, one guy, he's neglected, he's abused, there's confusion about him, people get angry about him and things like, like that. They get angry at him. He needs care. And this speaks loudly to the original audience, just as it does to us nowadays. Help a brother out. Help a brother out. The people of God nowadays have so many needs. And we can meet them. So volunteer. Give aid. Make connections. Bring encouragement. uh, Develop a relationship. Go to coffee with someone. Send a text to someone. Tell them that you're praying for them. Check up on people. Encourage them in Christ. See what you can do to help other people, to make their life easier. Relieve each other of burdens and care for each other to be a help to each other, not a hindrance to each other. We need to make this a habit, if for no other reason that we live in a society that's rapidly spiraling out of control, and it needs the church to be a stable environment, a safe haven for those who have been neglected. Perhaps now more than ever, and I've read too much of this, and perhaps you have as well, that we as Christians in America are being backed further and further into a corner, and if you only knew the sheer volume and the sheer kind of threats against us and the cultural dangers that are out there right now, even at our very doorstep, you'll know that we don't have time to be mistreating each other. We don't have time to be malicious toward one another. We're about 20 years beyond that. We're so far beyond that that it's not, it has lost its comedic value a long time ago. We need to help each other out. Christians need to help other Christians. And if this doesn't happen, the pattern of church history is rather clear in the way that I read it. The pattern of church history is that if we don't help each other out, the Lord, our God, will send persecution our way to make sure that we do. Which if that's what he wants to do, he will do, so let it be. Uh, We just sang a song that says, Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill. But God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. This mortal life and everything in it is to be a testament to uh, the help that we can uh, give to a brother in need. So, brothers and sisters in Christ, the church needs to be a help to each other. So help Christians in need. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do give you thanks and praise for your church, and we pray that you would bless your church so that we can not be like the man's neighbors, the man's who were supposed to be 